in these two passages that we're going to be looking at today, we'll be seeing the last moments our Lord and Savior spent prior to being nailed on the cross and what he went through once he was placed on it. Now, you may notice that in Luke's account, it isn't as complete, it isn't as thorough, it isn't as detailed as some of the other accounts. But there's a purpose behind it, there is a reason behind it, and it's, it's something that I mentioned all the way when we, before, well, when we began this gospel. You see, unlike those other gospels, we need to keep in mind that Luke's intent was to maintain the theme of his entire gospel, to inform his Gentile readers who, about who Jesus is. So, again, that's what we're going to be seeing, at, seeing today uh, as we cover these two sections in Luke chapter 23. So before we begin, let's ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, um, you are an amazing and beautiful and good and gracious and merciful and loving God, and we thank you that you have brought us here together. Uh, first of all, that we were just able to to open our eyes and take a breath to a brand new day. Lord, we know that our lives are ultimately in your hands and that you control everything. You know exactly when, when it's time for us to, to, to ultimately go home and be with you, Lord. So now as we continue to, to dedicate this time to you, we ask that you bless it, Lord, that you speak to us loudly, clearly through your word, that this message will also go out uh, boldly and powerfully to those that are here listening and to those who are watching and listening, wherever they may be. Fill me with your spirit to speak your truth. Fill those listening so they may hear it as well. And uh, again, bless this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And we'll be, we'll be beginning in verse 26. As they led him away, they seized Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the women without children, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us. And to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? In this first section that we just read, 
Luke gives us a very simple account of some of the people that Jesus encountered on his way to the cross. But before explaining that, before going there, it's important to mention what had already taken place up to this point. So after Pilate had capitulated to the crowd and handed our Lord over to their will, the story picks up by Jesus being led away toward the hill of execution. A cross beam on his shoulder, the Roman soldiers who accompanied him apparently noticed that he had become weak, too weak to carry the heavy wooden beam. Why? Well, we have to keep in mind that from his time in the garden and up to this point, Jesus had suffered both physically and emotionally. For instance, he suffered in the garden when he was in anguish and his sweat became like drops of blood. He suffered emotional stress of being abandoned by his disciples. He suffered a severe physical beating at the home of the high priest. And he had been suffering from the effects of a sleepless night. Additionally, Matthew, Mark, and John all mentioned that Pilate had that Pilate had Jesus severely beaten and whipped before he was given the crossbeam to carry. So given all those factors, Jesus would have already been significantly weak as he made his way up the two and a half mile trek to Calvary. But here's something to keep in mind. As he took each agonizing step, he had you, he had me, and he had every sinner in mind. You see, Jesus knew that the cross he was carrying would be the place where he'd take onto himself every single past, present, and future sin of ours. Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 says, He erased the certificate of death with its obligations that was against us and opposed us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. So again, he knew that that heavy cross he was carrying was important. And I really believe that he had you and me in mind, that he was thinking of us. He loved you that much. He loved you that much that he was willing to endure temporary agony so that you wouldn't have to suffer the eternal agony of hell. J.C. Ryle said, Surely that man must be an unhealthy state of soul who can think of all that Jesus suffered and yet cling to those sins for which that suffering was undergone. It was sin that wove the crown of thorns. It was sin that pierced our Lord's hands and feet and side. It was was sin that brought him to Gethsemane and Calvary, to the cross and to the grave. Cold must our hearts be if we do not hate sin and labor to get rid of it. 
So when the soldiers, again, noticed that he was too weak to carry the cross, we're told that they seized a man named Simon, laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. Now, more than likely, this particular Simon, well, we're already told that he came from, he was from Cyrene, which is modern-day Tripoli. Now, more than likely, he had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. But on that Friday morning, he suddenly found himself forced to carry the Savior's cross. And as a result, inadvertently, his name would forever be etched in world history. Now, besides that, not much is known about him. However, Mark chapter 15, verse 21 notes that Simon was the father of two well-known Christians, Rufus and Alexander. Now, it's widely believed that Simon got saved that very same day he carried the cross. This shouldn't be surprising for those who carry the cross of Christ will always fall in love with him. Initially, yeah, we may say, oh no, I don't want to go through that. I don't want to do that. It's too heavy. It's too burdensome. Why me? But eventually, we come to understand the incredible insight Jesus shared with us when he said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. A.W. Tozer wrote, The man with the cross no longer controls his destiny. He lost control when he picked up the, his cross. That cross immediately became to him an all-absorbing all interest, an overwhelming interference. No matter what he may desire to do, there is but one thing he can do. Move on toward the place of crucifixion. Now we're also told that a large crowd of people were following him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. Addressing the women in the crowd as the daughters of Jerusalem, he told them not to weep for him, but that they should weep for themselves and their children. So here he was referring to the terrible destruction that would descend on Jerusalem in AD 70, that he also mentioned back in chapter 21, verses 20 and 24. He informs them that he is that he's he is uh, that the suffering and sorrow of those days would be so great that women who never bore or nursed children would actually be blessed. Why? The horrors of the siege of Titus would be such that people will call for the mountains to fall on them and for the hills to cover them. Then the Lord added the words, For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry. Now, I know this may seem like a strange statement, but again, there was a reason, a purpose behind that. 
See, by, by this he meant that he himself is the wood that's green. And unbelieving Israel was the wood when it's dry. The point being that if the Romans heaped such shame and suffering on a sinless and innocent man, on the Son of God, what dreadful punishment would fall on the guilty murderers of God's beloved Son? In a greater sense, though, Jesus said this knowing what would happen to all who would reject him. Just as dry wood is only really good for burning, the same will be true for dried up souls who never accepted the nourishment that comes from the living waters of God. Against Virgin put it like this, Ye need not weep because Christ died one-tenth so much as because your sins rendered it necessary that he should die. You need not weep over crucifixion, but weep over your transgression. For your sins nail the Redeemer to the accursed tree. To weep over a dying Savior is to lament, and lament the remedy. It, is, it were wiser to be, well, to be well the disease. So in Luke's account, again, those were the events, these were the events that took place as our Lord made his way to be executed. In the next passage we're about to read, we'll be taking a look at his actual crucifixion. So let's go there now. Uh, let's pick up our Bibles and if you have them open and and read along as I read out loud, beginning in verse 32. Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. <coughs> Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, don't you, even, don't you even fear God, since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, being Jesus, said to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me paradise 
In this second section now that we just read, we're given a brief synopsis of our Lord's crucifixion. What our Lord prayed for, prayed for during that time and an important interaction that he had with one of the criminals who was also being crucified next to him. This section begins in verse 32 with Luke telling us that two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. But Jesus had known all along that he'd face a criminal's death and even expected it when he said in chapter 22, verse 37, that he'd be counted among the lawless. Well, that expectation became a reality when they arrived at the place called the skull and crucified him there along with those other two criminals. Now, for those who may be curious about where the word Calvary comes from, the Latin word for the skull is Calvaria. So perhaps it was named this because the configuration of the land resembled a skull, or maybe because the name itself symbolized a place of death. Now notice too that the two criminals with him claimed the position on the right and on the left. Positions over which the disciples had just been arguing about so vehemently. So while the disciples had fled in fear of being identified with this criminal, two criminals had taken up crosses and followed Jesus to Calvary. Now when the, first, when the New Testament was first written, the practice of crucifixion was well known and it didn't need to be explained. However, in the generations that followed when that practice was outlawed, when it was banned, when it wasn't, when the Romans stopped crucifying people, most generations that followed, most people seem to be, just aren't aware of what a person experienced in the ordeal of execution by crucifixion. So before I continue to explain this passage, I want to take a few minutes to tell you about it. But let me begin by telling you what Jonathan Edwards said. Although the Romans did not invent crucifixion, they perfected it as a form of torture and capital punishment that was designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain and suffering. Now, it's been said that the combination of scourging and crucifixion, crucifixion made death on the cross especially brutal. The victim's back was torn open by the scourging, by the whipping of the cat of nine tails. It just would be a, a leather whip at the end that would be attached uh, sharp pieces of bone and... When they whipped, when they would whip someone, it would rip the, the skin out. Then the clotting blood, blood was ripped open again when the clothes were torn off before crucifixion. 
as the victim as the victim was thrown on the ground to fix his hands on the crossbeam, and the wounds on his back were well, the wounds on on his back were again opened and contaminated with dirt. Then, as the victim hung on the cross, each breath caused the painful wounds on his back to rub against the rough wood of the upright beam. As each nail was driven through the wrists, the large median nerve located there would be severed. The stimulated nerve would then produce excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms and often gave the victim a claw-like grip in his hands. Beyond the extreme pain, crucifixion also restricted normal breathing. The weights of the body pulling down on the arms and shoulders tended to fix the respiratory muscles in an inhalation state and hinder exhalation. The lack of adequate respiration resulted in severe muscle cramps, which further hindered breathing. To get a good breath, the victim had to push against, push his, against the feet and flex the elbows, pulling from his shoulders. Putting the weight of the body on the feet produced searing pain, and flexing of the elbows twisted the hands hanging on the nails. Lifting the body for breath also painfully scraped the back against the rough wooden post. Each effort to get a proper breath was agonizing, exhausting, and led to sooner death. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards also noted, not uncommonly, insects would light upon the burrow into the open wounds or the eyes, ears, and nose of the dying and helpless victim. And the birds of prey would tear at these sites Moreover, it was customary to leave the corpse on the cross to be devoured by predatory animals. So as you can tell, death from crucifixion would come, it was just horrible and it would come by many sources. Acute shock from blood loss, dehydration, stress-induced heart attack, or congestive heart failure leading to cardiac rupture. If the victim didn't die quickly enough, the legs were broken and the victim was soon unable to breathe because of the posture of the crucified person. So how bad was crucifixion? Well, check this out. This, I, I thought this was interesting. We get our English word excruciating from the, Roman, from the Roman word out of the cross. Well, we're told in verse 34 that as our Lord was hanging from the cross with infinite love and mercy, he cried out, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. Let me remind you back in chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus had proven his ability to forgive sins in his healing ministry. In, verses, in, in chapter 6, verse, verse 37, and in chapter 11, verse 4, he had taught that forgiveness comes only to those who forgive others 
And in chapter 17, verse 4, that forgiveness has no limits. Also, in chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, he called for love of enemies. Here on the cross now, he was, pre- he was practicing what he had taught. As he watched those who mocked him, played games with him, scourged him, and crucified him. Our Lord and Savior asked the Father to forgive them because he loved his enemies, even in their ignorance. You see, Jesus recognized that neither Jewish accuser nor Roman executor fully understood the gravity of their actions. The Jews were protecting the religi- their religious establishment, and the Romans, in the person of Pilate, were protecting their political territory. Therefore, blinded by self-interest, they never realized that they were executing an innocent man. And they certainly weren't aware that they were executing the Son of God who came to save His people from their sins. Now, in no way was Jesus here suggesting that ignorance is an excuse for sin. However, His prayer for forgiveness does lead to a deeper question. Does God forgive sins of ignorance? Well, this passage doesn't answer that question, but it does show that God can forgive the most heinous crimes. It shows that God knows the complex causes of sin and the interplay of motivations that lead to the most horrible sins. And it also shows the need for victims of sin and crime to forgive and seek forgiveness for those who have misused, abused, and persecuted them. Friends, in Jesus we have a Savior we can look to as a perfect example of what grace, mercy, and love looks like. So as Jesus prayed for forgiveness, I want you to notice that four different groups of what four different groups of people were doing. The first group were the soldiers who at the end of verse 34 says were gambling away the last of Jesus's earthly material possessions. Thus fulfilling the words found in Psalm 22 verse 18, they divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. Additionally, verse 36 and 37 informs us that they also mocked him by offering him sour wine and challenging him to save himself. The second and third groups are found in verse 35. There we told that the same people that gathered with Pilate and called for his crucifixion were now just standing there, now stood there watching, observing as Jesus was slowly dying on the cross. Among them also were the leaders who now began to verbally ridicule him, again also mocking him by saying, he saved others, let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, 
the chosen one. But in doing so, by saying by what these religious leaders were saying, they were unwittingly testifying to the work Jesus said in chapter 19, verse 10, that he was there to accomplish, to seek and to save the lost. The fourth was one of the two criminals hanging next to Jesus. Verse 39 says that one of them began yelling insults at our Lord, saying, Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. More than likely, this man deserved the punishment that he was given. But now his true character was being revealed by the words that he was speaking, by the words he said as he was dying. As the minutes ticked by of his, of his eventual demise, all he can do is hurl insults at the only one who could save his soul from eternal suffering. So far, then, what we see is, or what Jesus sees, is that below him were soldiers mocking him. In front of him were leaders ridiculing him. And next to him was a criminal insulting him. Still, though, that wasn't it. Luke tells us in verse 38 that above him was a sign placed describing his alleged crime. This is the king of the Jews. Here's what Scottish minister James Stewart said about that sign. We cannot miss the significance of the fact that the inscription was written in three languages. Greek and Latin and Hebrew. No doubt this was done in order to make sure that everyone in the crowd might read it. But Christ's church has always seen it and rightly a symbol of the universal lordship of their master. For these were the three great world languages, each of them the servant of one dominant idea. Greek was a language of culture and knowledge in that realm. Said the, said the inscription, Jesus was king. Latin was the language of law and government. Jesus was king there. Hebrew was the language of revealed religion. And Jesus was king there. Hence, even, even as he hung dying, it was true what it said in Revelation chapter 19, verse 12. On his head were many crowns. So although this sign was intended to mock our Lord, it actually proclaimed an eternal truth for those who would listen. Jesus is truly the King of the Jews, the promised Messiah, and as such, is the only, the only hope for the world. Those who would be part of an eternal kingdom must believe on him as their king. Now, in the midst of this display of unbelief and mockery, the other criminal that was hanging on the other side understood the difference between his own guilt and Jesus' innocence. This became apparent. This became apparent 
by the three ways in which he responded. First, he rebuked the mocking criminal, acknowledging the justice of their punishment for the things they did. Second, he defended Jesus, acknowledging the Lord, that the Lord had done nothing wrong. And third, he demonstrated his, his faith by making a simple request. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see, by asking him this, asking him this, the repentant criminal was affirming his belief that Jesus was the Messiah and the King of the Jews. Well, upon hearing his request, he assured him. He took that breath that we just found out about was so agonizing and painful earlier that I described earlier. He, he took a breath to say, to tell him that he would immediately be reunited with him in paradise. The man hoped for some kind of help in the future, but Jesus gave him forgiveness that very day. And he died and went with Jesus to paradise. Now this paradise he was speaking of was the same was the same uh, third heaven Paul was the same uh, third heaven Paul mentioned in Second Corinthians chapter twelve verses two and four, and it means the eternal or the dwelling place of God. So the answer that that second criminal got was far better than what he had expected. The thief on the cross had some distant time on his mind. Jesus, though, told him today. The thief on the cross asked only to be remembered. But Jesus said, you will be with me. The thief on the cross looked only for a kingdom. Jesus, however, promised him paradise. Now, Jesus' answer also shows us that the, man, that, the, that the man was saved wholly by grace. It was the gift of God, as Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says. He did not deserve it, and he couldn't earn it. His salvation, therefore, was personal and secure, guaranteed by the word of Jesus Christ. Now, one other thing that to keep in mind was he was saved. He didn't have to go through any kind of ceremonies. He didn't. He didn't even. He wasn't even baptized. Now, some will argue that people need to be baptized to be saved, but here we see an example where, again, Jesus told him that he would be with him in paradise. What we see here is something also pretty remarkable a deathbed conversion and the best biblical example of last minute salvation the significance of this is the certainty that salvation is available to anyone up until they breathe their last breath this may seem unfair to many 
but in the larger picture, it gives glory to the grace and mercy of God, who desires everyone to believe in His Son and be saved. Thus, it's far more important that a person has been saved than, than the point in which a person gets saved. So as believers, you and I should rejoice every time a dead sinner is born again, regardless if it happens at a young age or at the very end of their lives. When we hear about evil and violent people that spent their last minutes before their own execution, accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we should honestly, as believers, rejoice that another soul won't be suffering the eternal torment of hell. We should look forward to, to knowing and seeing that we're going to be, or knowing that we'll be seeing them in paradise, that we'll be seeing them in heaven and talking to them and finding out about their conversion. And, you know, I, I do, I pray and hope that those who are on death row, who are facing execution, that they find Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. As a matter of fact, I'll even go even further. I pray that every terrorist that is trying to harm this country, trying to destroy this country, to bring, to kill people, will come to know Jesus Christ. Those who have done so and those who want to, that they will come to know Jesus Christ and be saved. Because even they need salvation. Jesus died for them. Not just us, not just for Americans, but for the sins of the world. So, again, let us rejoice when we do discover that a dead sinner has become born again. Now, there may be some who will use this story to put off repentance and faith in Christ for another time. Now, to those who are, let me share with you what a wise Puritan wrote. We have one account of a death, deathbed repentance in order that no, no man need despair. We have only one in order that no man may presume. What this means that is that there's no one that no one should presume that they'll have plenty of time to make Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The fact is, none of us knows how much time we have left in this life or what the circumstances of our death will be. You've heard me say it many times before. You can walk out of these doors and it could be the last moment of your life. And here you are thinking, oh, when I get old, I'll surrender my life to Jesus. But you don't have that guarantee. You don't know that. You're only presuming that you have that time. See, you may die 
in a sudden and unexpected manner where you won't have an opportunity to have a deathbed conversion. So doesn't it make sense that the only reasonable option is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ today? Ladies and gentlemen, the image the image of an unrepentant sinner on one side of our Lord and a repentant sinner on the other should force us to answer this important question. What side of the cross are you on? Are you on the same side of the criminal with a hard heart? Or are you on the other side who was repentant and seeking forgiveness? It was said that German theologian Martin Luther was observing a painting of the crucifixion of Jesus. And he was so deeply moved that he said, My God, my God, for me, for me, it should move you to what he went through during that crucifixion during his crucifixion. If your heart resembles the heart of the repentant criminal, then here shortly I'd like to lead you in a prayer to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to accept God's free gift of forgiveness. But before I do, I want to quickly highlight a few things we found in these first two passages that we covered today. First of all, we see that at least two lives were radically changed before Jesus died on the cross. A, by, a bystander named Simon of Cyrene and a criminal who hung on his own cross next to Jesus. The former was unexpected and the latter repented. Those two men were exactly where they needed to be. And for all of eternity, their lives were forever changed. Secondly, it should be noted that the people at Calvary fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy in what they did. For instance, or I mentioned it earlier, Psalm 22, 18 says they were gambling for our Lord's clothes. In Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8, they mocked him. And in Psalm 69, 21, they were offering him vinegar to drink. And all these things... But just those three, those, three, those three things alone show us that the Old Testament prophecy about Jesus would be fulfilled in just what they would do, what those people would be doing. And thirdly, you must ask yourself today, you must ask yourself this honest question, if today were your last day, would Jesus receive you into paradise? Or would he condemn you at the judgment for rejecting him? 
look again at everything that he went through so far and realize that he did it all so that you wouldn't have to die in your sins. And I haven't even gotten to, to his death, his burial, and resurrection. I'll be covering that next week, but just from the time of Gethsemane to this point here of hanging on the cross, he suffered so much for you so that you, again, you wouldn't have to suffer eternally so that you wouldn't have to die on your sin in your sins we're told again in the bible that as he hung there the sins of the world were placed upon him and those who believe and trust in him will receive eternal life, will become born again and receive eternal life. Their sins will no longer be counted against them forever. So, if this is what you believe, if, if, if you're tired of living in sin and you know that you're a sinful person, you recognize that you've fallen short from the glory of God and need forgiveness. I've been seeking forgiveness for many, many years and haven't been able to. I, I would, all you have to do is just ask Him from the sincerity of your heart to forgive you, and He will. So today, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. I want to give you an opportunity to surrender your life to Jesus Christ and make Him your Lord and Savior, and become born again. So if that's what you would like, wherever you're at, I want you to close your eyes and bow your head and pray this with a sincere heart. Lord Jesus, I recognize, I know that I'm a sinner. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died on the cross for all my past, present, and future sins. And I also believe with all my heart that you rose from the dead. So I now repent. I now turn from my sins and confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. Lord Jesus, thank you for saving me. Now fill me with the Holy Spirit so that he may help guide me in my new born-again life. In your name, amen. If you prayed that, if you're out there, regardless if you're around the world or here locally, contact us, let us know. We want to hear from you. We want to pray with you. We want to lead you into your next steps. Um, again, go to our website, FVCELP, and you, you can get our information there and contact me there. You can also send me a message on YouTube or Facebook.
and and I'll get back to you and and again maybe help you find a church or get you a Bible or whatnot. But don't let another day go by with just you you know doing nothing. Start walking, start crawling, whatever you may call it, but start in your new relationship with the Lord strong by reading his word, praying, and just coming to him for for strength and, and wisdom and knowledge. So I look forward to, again, seeing you all next week as we continue this chapter. And I pray that you will have a blessed week. And I'll see you then. Farewell.